A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode... This fear about crowds and gatherings, I understand why it's there, but when, when people are outside, the risk of transmission is so low. Where does it rank in terms of performances? Well, it's the fastest. You, you're putting them at like 5.96 watts per kilo, which is not, you know, it's not unrealistic. There's not a great relationship between the actual force and the concussion. Well, this is a rare occasion in the uh, history of the Real Sounds of Sport podcast. We're doing uh, basically a podcast per week of the 2020 Tour de France. And uh, not that we've done the 2020 Tour de France before. This is the first time we've done that. But uh, we haven't done regular updates. And we felt that uh, a week ago when we did our first podcast on the Tour de France, uh, we received a lot of reaction to that on Twitter and uh, lots of you uh, being part of the discussions on Twitter around the various things you talked about last week. So we decided because there was so much to talk about this week, we would do another Tour de France bonus episode for all of our uh, listeners. So uh, welcome to our second episode of our Tour de France 2020. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, what happened on the Grand Colombier uh, yesterday, which was this, the second Sunday of the 2020 event. And then we're going to talk about some of the uh, interesting discussions around power outputs, some of the uh, issues around concussion, what happened with the COVID testing, and then have a look at some of the uh, interesting things that we expect to happen during the last week of this year's tour. But before we do that, uh, we have a few thank yous to our fantastic uh, Patreon members. And uh, we've got a few extra members that we had from uh, last week. And uh, I want to ask Ross to read out their names. Yeah, so as always, massive thanks. We, and again, I always say this, I do apologize. We love doing this. That's why we did it now, because we we talk about the tour all the time. We WhatsApp one another. Did you see that? Did you see that? And we say, <laughs> we better podcast this. So basically what you're all doing is donating for the privilege of eavesdropping on our, our conversation. So I just wanted to read out some names. This is everyone since the previous time, plus one other. Matty Fenty. I missed his name previously. Um, actually sent me a message on Instagram, very kind message, in which he said that this is one of the few podcasts that is worth his money, which is really great. And also said, uh, I want to read this to you, Mike, because I thought this would amuse you. I'd love to hear you chatting at five on my way to work, even though the South African accent makes some words difficult to understand for me sometimes. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought the South African accent was relatively easy. I, I don't know. I think I sound cool. but <laughs> I, I hear when somebody overseas takes the mickey out of the South African accent, I can't believe that that's what people think we think that we sound like yeah because i think the south african accent's quite neutral i think anyway when i listen to like i mean like belgian and dutch folks speaking english i think that actually sounds quite cool and in my mind i feel like i sound like that i once gave a talk by the way at a conference in monaco and the person after me was the medical director of fifa and he went up and the first thing he says i'm sure you're all relieved that i'm up here because now you'll actually be able to understand me <laughs> I'm sitting there like you asshole. <laughs> Come on, man. Look, that's uncalled for. That's not very nice. Uh, then also, who else have we got? We've got at our Olympic athlete level, Murray Bishop. Thank you very much. Uh, Paul Smith has come in at the same Olympic athlete level. Vid, just one name like Pele, Vid, also in the Olympic athlete level. And then Claire Leung. Then we've got a few 
who've come in at the middle level, which is normally called Olympic champion. Let's, in honor of the Tour de France, say that you are stage winners of the Tour de France. That is Leslie McKenzie, Delilah Topic. Uh, yeah, that's our two in the middle. So you are stage winners of the Tour de France. And then our Maya Jones, our yellow jersey wearers, you've come in at the top level just since our last podcast. Massive thanks, Graham Roger, Sandeep Sekar, Darren Egan, and Mike James. So once again, we love doing this, but we are massively grateful for your donations on Patreon. So if anyone else listening feels the need or the inclination, you are obviously welcome. And it's really great to have you along in our community. Yeah, thank you very much and uh, much appreciated. Uh, if you do want to uh, do donate to our worthy cause, you can have a look at our links on all of our podcasts. It's at the bottom of the notes. And uh, we are promising, and I really do, I know that I've said this on a couple of occasions in the last uh, year or so, <laughs> that we will put the podcast notes up at some point. And I'm determined uh, at this podcast to put out some of the notes to give you some of the links that we're going to be talking about today to help you kind of enjoy the podcast a bit more with us. So um, if you do look at the podcast right now and have a look at down at the notes, you should see some of the notes from the things that we're going to be talking about, like using things like calculators to work out uh, what what's per kilogram people do up climbs, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to be talking a little bit about that um, in this podcast. So keep an eye on that and you can uh, have some fun with it in the evening. Right, so let's move on to the second week of the uh, Tour de France. And last week we talked a little bit about, so let's start off with the COVID discussion. And Ross, I know that you said that, and I think a lot of people, there were some big scare stories going out last week, particularly from uh, some of the Twitterati who were talking about the fact that all the fans on the side of the road were going to cause these uh, riders to get COVID and the peloton was going to be rife with COVID and it, the tour was in danger. But as you predicted, it, it wasn't anywhere near as bad as we expected. Yeah, last week I was optimistic, maybe maybe coloured a little bit by hope. Um, my confidence might have been blended with my hope that the race would continue, but I was fairly sure it would. Yeah. Um, this fear about crowds and gatherings, I understand why it's there, but when, when people are outside, the risk of transmission is so low. It really is, even when they're not wearing masks. I've seen media coverage from all over the world of people returning to normal life after lockdown, and, and they normally scare headlines where they say massive crowds gather on the beach on a public holiday, for yeah. instance, in the United States. And they always use these pictures of crowds on beaches. They should be you should be congratulating and thanking people for gathering in, in beaches and outdoor spots because the risk really is so low. Like if you want to create a perfect hotspot to spread this disease and cause clusters, then you want to find indoor environments where people speak loudly and are in close contact, namely restaurants, dinner venues, pubs, those kinds of places. And church choirs. Church choirs is massive. So, <laughs> Sorry, church if choirs. The tour, if the Tour de France starts to put itself in those situations, then yeah, let's freak out and tell them they're irresponsible. But yeah. I, and yes, you can always be more responsible by wearing a mask and by ensuring that you're three or four meters away from someone instead of one. Yeah. So the, the density that we saw, for instance, on the parasol is not ideal. No. But that situation on the side of a mountain where young generally fit people who are often exercising to get there yeah. and therefore are much less likely to be symptomatic. I mean, I don't think if you've got a fever and the issues COVID causes, you're going to be riding your bike no. up that climb. Those are actually quite low risk environments. So my feeling always was, and it's the same now, is that the risk is going to come at the hotels, it's going to come at the start lines, 
It's going to come when crowds are gathering and you're standing still and you tend to be indoors and static and long for longer periods. Not not a transient cycle race moving through your town and, and mm. over a mountain for sure. And it sounds like, I mean, we haven't seen much detail about this so-called bubble that the riders are in, but I'd imagine that the riders are in a sort of a tighter bubble than the staff that look after the bikes and that sort of thing. So a couple of staff members tested positive, but, you know, the riders, as far as we know, none of them tested positive if you look at the reports. Do you expect the same thing to happen by the, after the testing today? Yeah, if there are positive cases, there'd be very few, I hope. Yeah. And, and I expect, I do expect that. Yeah. You can't obviously create a perfect bubble. The race has to have some contact with the world not inside of it because it's a moving thing. Yeah. And so I, I don't know. It'll be That's why we hope we can get someone who's been at the race to come and talk to us at the end of the cycling season and really understand how it worked. Yeah. So I think they're doing quite a good job. The riders are naturally the priority um, because if a team is sent home, I mean, imagine it's quick step with two guys and now the green jersey and elephant is gone. You yeah. know, that's a problem. That's, oh, imagine it's, it's a tragedy. Imagine it's Jumbo or, or UAE and now you've lost really mm. the main storyline for the last week. So f- for various reasons, that's their focus. But of course, this, the, 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 the town, I mean, it's a moving city. The two yeah. fronts, it's a small one, but it still is. It has to have some interaction with the outside world. So there will be cases. I mean, saw Christian Prudhomme, who's the race director. He yeah. was tested positive, but I guess he's mingling with celebrities if, and people outside of that bubble fairly if, often. If you were offering bets on which person <laughs> in that tour bubble was most likely to get um, infected, mm. you would put it on the head politician because yeah. he's the guy least likely to be avoiding the risk. I mean, yeah. you know, like one of your good friends is a political guy here. Mm. Those guys were never going to escape it. Yeah, so yeah. that was not a surprise, nor was the low number in the riders and. Hopefully, hopefully I'm not jinxing it now, but yeah. I suspect we'll get through this and we'll get all the way to Paris without incident. So let's talk a little bit about what we saw in the last week of the tour. Um, just, I'm going to throw it at you, Ross. Highlights for you? What, what's been the highlight of the last week? Friday-Saturday combination was great. Mm. Really, really good because Friday was that super steep finish on the Puy Marie. There was a breakaway race. And there was the main GC race, yeah. both of which were quite exciting, I think, at the end, especially yeah. in the sprints. Saturday, for me, was the most tactically entertaining stage finish so far, where we saw them coming into Leon and Sunweb pulled off a masterclass where they went one, two, three punches, and the third punch is the one that landed. I thought that was really terrific. I mean, we were messing each, messaging each other at the time, like saying how impressive that was as a performance. So those were really good. And then the big anti-climax for me, and I know you don't necessarily agree, yesterday's <laughs> climb, yesterday's stage was boring. It really was. Yeah. I, I was watching it and I just kept hoping that somebody would enlighten it up, you know, like that someone would do something. But I understand why they can't. It just... Just the sky train me. all over again, wasn't it? Right. And it, so yeah. it frustrates me and it concerns me because... It's the same, and we spoke about this in week one show, it's the same pattern we've seen for 20 years. Yeah. And it's not a pattern that has good foundations, in yeah. my opinion and in my experience, where you've got 20 guys being towed along by five. That's yeah. what it looked like. It, yeah. was a, it was a yellow sort of front carriage and, and 20 guys latched onto it. The pace is so fast that nobody else can attack because they're riding it at... 5.8 to 6 watts a kilo, pretty much from the bottom of the climb. Now, that's a power output that is at or slightly above most top-level cyclists' critical power. So for the for the 45 minutes of that climb, everyone is pretty much on their 
steady state limit. The implication of that is that if you attack, you're going beyond steady state and there's a cost to that. So yeah. therefore nobody will pay that cost because yeah. it's too risky to do anything. So the whole race is just neutralized and suffocated by the ability of that one team to control it. And for me, it's boring. I, I yeah. Like if I compare that to the, the mountain finishes we saw in the Dauphiné, once Roglic was gone, yeah. everyone feels they have a chance. There's no, there's no structure. There's no pattern. It's so much more exciting. And yeah. I, I really, I, I found it, I can appreciate that it's impressive. Like <laughs> maybe yeah, you don't want to know how it's made, but it's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's not, it's no suspense to it. It's no. just a question of last cyclist standing, you know, and, mm. and I, yeah, unfortunately, I think that's how it's going to be till the till the time trial. We're going to just a, a bit of an analysis of the, of the climb at Grand Colombia shortly. I, I do agree with you about that. There's there's two rides before that. Uh, of course, um, on the on the Friday it was uh, Daniel um, Martinez who mm. took out the two Bora guys, which I thought was bad news for Bora. But it was incredible to see how Bora, he was the pure Colombian climber up against guys that actually on paper one of the Bora guys should have won it because they were two against one, but actually physiology kind of won that contest at the yeah, end of the day because he's a bit of climber. And gravity because yeah. on a flat road, two on one, two wins, yeah. I, I was going to say 90% of the time, maybe maybe, yeah. maybe not, but two wins because he's been dragged up. By, uh, the, the second Bora guy has been dragged up to the first Bora guy by the Colombian. But, yeah, and he, and he did all the work. Yeah. And you're thinking at this point, this guy's just sitting in, he's getting towed and he's going to make the move. And he tried. Yeah. But at 15% in gravity, then actually the road decides who's stronger, not team tactics. And yeah. he was that was impressive. Very good. I always wondered back in the team bus, did Bora look at that and go, okay, we got this two against one, but they must have known that Martinez, even though the commentators were saying, oh, it's Bora, yeah, they must have stand a good chance. When I looked at Martinez Palmares, I mean, he was somebody, he was a, he's a really good climber. He's nuggety and he's got the you know, power to weight ratio that the other guys didn't have. Yeah, and... Kamner, who was the second Bora guy yeah. being pulled up, is not getting anything like the same energy benefit as nah. he would be getting on even a five or six percent grade. Never mind a flat, mm. a flat road. So, so in the end, the saving wasn't as good, and he just didn't have enough. He may not have had enough anyway because Martinez was just at that at that gradient is just too strong. Yeah, and then that stage that you talked about with the Sunweb guys, Soren and Craig Anderson going off the front, I thought that was a I think if you have a look at a race finish like that where timing is everything, the way that Sunweb as a tactical unit played that last sort of five or six kilometres, Hersher going off the front, he was the threat, everybody chased him down. Craig Anderson goes on the right, they don't chase, they just, nobody's kind of chasing him and by the time they've looked up he's got, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds and he's gone. But you don't often see that really where it's almost a slightly downhill finish. You've got a whole bunch working together but just the timing is absolutely everything because if he'd gone a kilometer before, it might have been a different result. Yeah, and remember he was the third one. So yeah, it was, right. was it Benut? It was Benut, Tish Benut, Benut and, then and then it was Hershey. Hershey, yeah. And when Hershey goes, Hershey's obviously like Sunweb's yeah, yeah. headline guy now, right now. Yeah, um, and he won. finally won that stage. Well, that's the other thing that happened, <laughs> and I forgot that in our recap. He finally yeah. got it. And yeah. we said in our show last time that like we feel bad for the guy having come so close twice, especially yeah. the second time, but he'll put himself in that situation again and sure enough he did it within a week i yeah. didn't think he'd do it that quickly but he's obviously got something yeah. about him so when he goes and the, the if i remember correctly and it is a while back as in a few days now <laughs> uh but so much happens in the tour it feels like longer yeah. uh sagan chased him down 
Yes. Am I right? That's right. And that's because Sagan that really had set that day up yeah. to win maximum points at the finish. So Sagan had every incentive to mm. not let anyone go off. The the problem for Sagan, and I don't know if you've noticed this, and I found it weird, is that a couple K before that, the guy who was off the front was a teammate of his. Yeah. And it was Kamner, and he was hammering. He was going for it. And that was weird because... But he was forcing the other teams to chase. Yes, but but in us, and I suppose hindsight's always wonderful, but... Yeah. In hindsight, Kamner there to help chase those attacks might have yeah. actually helped Sagan True. respond because the first blow they pulled back, the second blow by Hershey they pulled back, but when the third one went off, you got the impression that Sagan said, well, someone else do it. Yeah. And no one else Nobody either could it. or wanted to. They didn't have the incentive, and so they got away with it, and it was a tactical mm. heist. I mean, it was terrific. Hasn't been a great turf for Peter Sagan, though, to be honest. I mean, he's just... He hasn't got that last, but it, that edge that he used to have. Um, Sam Bennett seems to have the edge on if it's one mano mano, Bennett's got it, and probably deserves to have the green jersey above anything. Yeah, and I was looking at the profiles for the rest of the stages, and there's yeah. there's one or two where there's a small bump or a cat four before the intermediate sprint. There's one or two where there's nothing. It's just mm. straight in from the start line to the sprint, sort of like it was yesterday. So you got to think that they'll cancel one another out. Yeah, Sagan might at best get away with two sort of sneaky attacks dropping Bennett, but Bennett will beat him on the other two. Yeah. And so that looks like Bennett's actually pretty got secure in that respect. So well, Sagan yeah. got seven green jerseys, so you not looking good for an eighth. No. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, maybe his focus, he'll put it down to a bad COVID yeah. year, maybe training and so on. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of cyclists actually in the Peloton whose training is very different to what it normally would be and yeah. Some people might be actually better than they normally would be. Others not so much. And he's, yeah. on that, he's in that latter group perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's uh, have a little bit of a deep dive as we do on this uh, podcast around certain elements of what we have seen. We're going to have a close look at the, the Grand Colombier, which is this absolutely spectacular climb um, just in the sort of south southeast of France and around there. Um, but it's, it's, it's a classic famous climb on the cycling. It's been used in the Dauphiné and lots of other events. Um, depending on which side you and where you measure it from, it averages between 16 and 17 kilometers long. It was the deciding factor of the stage yesterday. Of course, we saw Egan Bernal um, and Nara Quintana lose a lot of time, seven minutes, I think it was, for Bernal at the end of it. But this is, we're going to look at closely at what what, what the, the winner did. So Tadej Pogacar, of course, winning the winning the stage, just getting across the line ahead of Roglic. Mm. Um, his time, 43 minutes and 43 seconds. When you look at that, you look at the performance of Yumba Visma, you go, wow, this that is an extraordinarily good performance. Where does it rank in terms of performances? Well, it's the fastest. I mean, it's, it's yeah. like, and so it's like the Paris Sword, it's like Port de Ballets, I think was the same in the Pyrenees. It's, they're the fastest times. Okay. Um, and yesterday's climb, there was no monkeying about. Like the, Sometimes you see on climbs, there's an attack and it gets brought back and then everyone looks at one another, the race slows down, it's fast, slow, fast, slow. Yeah. Yesterday was pretty much just foot flat on the accelerator pedal from the bottom all the way to the last 100 meters and then a sprint, yeah. maybe maybe three, 400 meters. So that is pr pretty much a true reflection of what a maximal effort looks like for that period. Yeah, now, with the best riders in the world. <laughs> yeah, So and, that's, and, and the consistency of the pace on the climb, because if you go and you look at the speeds and more the VAM, which is the vertical ascent meters, which is measured per hour, you can go on Strava, a number of the cyclists have put those up there. 
And Strava divides the climb obviously into segments. That doesn't change much. Where yeah. if you saw a fast, slow, remember when Rasmussen and uh, I forget who it was, Contador, and then Contador and Schleck were playing with one another, and you, you almost had cycling track stands, you know, they were stopping, yeah. looking at each other, go hard. Then mm-hmm. you get highly variable. That was the speed. exciting racing. <laughs> this this was pretty much just a 45-minute time trial yeah. to see who could go the longest. And in the end, two things. One is it's actually quite surprising how many did it. Yeah. Um, by the time Roglic eventually attacked with a few hundred to go, that group was still 15 or 16 strong. Yeah. Which is surprising at 5.9 to 6 watts a kilo. Yeah. There's obviously some drafting benefit to being in a pack. So guys like Uran and, and the Stana guy, the Movistar guys, who you never really saw put their head out, <laughs> mm. they might be going at 5.8. Um, but I was quite surprised at how big that group was. Normally we expect five or six in the last kilometer, not 16. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the context of the race, the reason I think it was quite interesting is it was the first, first long climb. Now... I don't mean to say like climbing in, in the Pyrenees and you're doing these 25, 26 minute Paris or Port de Bales, that's also long. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but now we're in the 45 minute range. Yeah. And this was the kind of climb where the, the physiology of the, the real climbers, Bernal, Quintana, these guys was meant to come through. And there was a perception, and I'd listened to a few people speaking about it before, that guys like Roglic and Pogacar had more punch, more power better for those explosive short efforts and maybe this was going to be the moment for the Bernal Quintana to come through and then they start the climb with 17 to go Mm. and at 13 to go they're gone yeah that was for me so so of that was the headline really yesterday was the two the two big Colombian favorites of the four or five who are in the top 10 were gone within the first quarter yeah. of a of a climb. That, that was a big surprise. And it's a kind of a strange climb because obviously the the lower slopes are a bit tougher than the slopes as you get towards the top. So it kind of not saying it levels out, but it goes from an extreme. Some pitches of twenty percent on the lower slopes and that beautiful sort of snaking climb up mm. the side of the mountain. Sadly, devoid of any spectators, which would have been marvelous to see the spectators. And I know my son's ridden up there before, and it really is a spectacular climb. But so. In terms of Pogacar's watts per kilo, you, you're putting him at like 5.96 watts per kilo, which is not, you know, it's not unrealistic. Yeah, so in our last Tour de France episode, people can go back a week ago, I spoke about how since 2009 I'd analyzed power outputs. I stopped in about 2014-15 because it became, in the end, a little bit frustrating and not really worth the time and the effort. Um, <laughs> and I was busy with other things. But but in that period, I'd analyzed, for instance, Contador and Schleck on the Tourmalet. We'd analyzed a few climbs of the uh, Alpe d'Huez, which also takes in the range of 40 to 42 minutes. And the typical power output at the front of the race, the Contador-Schleck battle, the when Quintana won on Alpe d'Huez a couple of years ago, I think it was, I think it was 2016, 17, I forget. Those power outputs are also in that range of 5.9 to 6. And so what we saw yesterday from 16 guys, that for me is the surprise, yeah. is quite similar in performance to what we've seen over the last decade or so. Uh, in comparison in the Pyrenees, we saw Pogacar at 6.5 watts for 25 minutes. Now, obviously, this is logical. If you go for 45, you're at a lower power than if you're going for 25. So in that respect, relatively consistent with historically, mm-hmm. but it is, as we've said, it's it's still the fastest they've ever done this climb. Um, 
this climb was done in 2019 in the Tour de Lane. It was done this year. And both times it was a couple of minutes slower than it was mm. that we saw yesterday. So Pina, I think, was 2019 and he did 47 minutes odd for a similar distance. But he attacked with 11Ks to go as opposed to time trialing the whole 17K. Mm. So that performance of his wasn't bad when you consider that he didn't have this train of banana peels ahead of him yeah. <laughs> and the yum of his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're seeing, we're seeing historically fast climbs, but mm. not. Not so extreme, so extremely fast that you're starting to actually. That's not because even mm. last week I did say that if we see anything above six point one, six point two, yeah, for the very long climbs, that's massive alarm bells. Mm. For me, the, the the numbers yesterday and even the, on a Friday and and in, in the Pyrenees are still extremely high, but by themselves don't really, yeah, l- blow the lights out. The, and again, I'm repeating what I said in our first tour show. The pattern. Is more concerning to me. Yeah. Um, climbers dropping, sorry, uh, flat road classics guys dropping climbers. Mm. I know some commentators picked up on that. British commentary apparently said that the, had a degree of incredulous response to the fact that like Bernal and Quintana and those guys are being shelled off by by guys who you wouldn't think would be doing that. Yeah, for but, not. Yeah. But then I'm like, well, where have you guys been for the last decade? Because that's exactly what's happened for 10 years in the tour. Mm. Um, climbers being dropped by by big yeah. guys who shouldn't have no business doing it. And anyway, I yeah, cycling's history is such that when you see the same patterns, you know the same ingredients, you wonder if the or sorry, not the same ingredients, the same outcomes. You yeah. wonder always whether the ingredients are the same. Why would they be different? Well, I'll let you make your moans, your own minds up about uh, what you saw with that. Uh, that Yamba Visma train going up the the climb yesterday, and it certainly is very impressive to watch. And uh, but as you say, at the times you know that what's per kilo for climbers not unrealistic, but maybe for some of those non-climbers, some pretty impressive performances, particularly from people like Wad Van Aert, because he led that climb for nine, seven or nine kilometers, pushing. I would love to know what his watts were like going up there, but then peeled off and then still rode with wow. Bernal for, for the rest of the climb. Yeah, and Bernal, okay, yeah. we said, wow, Bernal lost seven minutes. It's yeah. still. So Bernal's at just over five. He's made, I don't know, 5.1, 5.2 yeah. perhaps once he'd gone. But he hasn't trashed his legs for the first seven kilometers, potentially as hard as Van Aert. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Van Aert's, in theory, like well above that limit. So mm. physiologically, again, Van Aert is doing something well beyond mm. critical power because he's going to, he's really planning to go for 20 minutes. Yeah. Whereas everyone else in that peloton is knowing that this is going to be a 45 minute effort. And so you're not really comparing like to like there, mm. which is always interesting. And relevant when you start saying, but there's six guys out of 20 from one team. Yeah. Well, four of those six guys aren't doing the same pacing strategy as the other 14. So you've mm. got to bear that in mind a little bit. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the quality of the climb, though, and I don't mean any disrespect, but when you've got 16 guys, there are people in that group. You go, how is he there today? Mm-hmm. And it's actually, that's quite amazing that, X, Y, and Z are in that front group. That's that's not a guy who has. Mm. So then, I, then I wonder: well, is it is it actually that impressive? I, I don't know. I yeah, it looked impressive, but maybe time wise or the fact that they were following the wheel. Because I guess the, the question is, and I always wonder about this: to what benefit is there if you're going up a climb of sixty or no, not sixty, maybe like eight percent? Um, you know, the benefit of the drafting behind somebody like a white fan art is obviously very limited compared to going along a flat road at 50 kilometers an hour where you've got a real draft benefit. But not zero. 
it's not zero, but mm. I mean, what is, I mean, can you? Is there any way of working that out? If you're going up at eight percent climb at twenty five k's an hour, you're probably getting some draft benefit, but but not. You still have to be a damn good climber to stay with it. Yeah, of course. Most of yeah. most of your work there is overcoming gravity, and yeah. that's why you can use calculators that you can find online. Like you can look mm. up calculating power output on a climb for cycling, and you'll mm. find half a dozen of them. Mm. So they differ very slightly. Some are better than others, but yeah. you can play around. We'll put one and, on the show notes. And uh, yeah, most of it goes towards the gradients. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, they climbed yesterday at 22.3k an hour, I think it was, oh. average speed. Yeah. Remember when the sub two hour marathons, and I was switching off bikes onto feet here, yeah? the sub two hour marathon attempt, when it first happened, they were trying to argue that it was all a wind thing. Because they put Kipchoge in a little phalanx of guys who were going to run in a flying V. Mm. And they'd had some aerodynamics guy work out that the energy saving from being in that little pocket um, behind a group of runners was, I forget the number exactly, but they said it was worth like a minute or so in a marathon. Now that's 1%. So you're saying that 1% of the energy on a bike. And if, you, if you're in a group of 16 and you're right near the middle or the back of that, like yeah. some of those guys who ran and the Movistar guys, Valverde and Mass and... Lopez of Astana, whose faces you didn't see because they were sheltered. No. That might be one or two percent yeah. for them. And that and might be the difference. Well, that is that it clearly is the difference because next Saturday you're going to see all the guys doing a time trial where they don't get that benefit. And okay, there's some mental <laughs> mental aspects to a time trial as well, but mm. you're not going to get 16 guys within a minute of each other. They're going to be spread out big time. Part True. of that is that uh, yesterday anyone who could hold six to say 5.7 watts per kilogram could actually ride together yeah. because the, the drafting benefit is worth the 0.3 to keep that guy there. Yeah. yeah. The only guy getting popped off that group is someone who is weaker by the, by the amount that the draft helps. That make, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. but yeah. at the same time, what Jumbo Lisma doing is saying, if you want to stick your neck out and go for it, you're going to have to attack us at 6.4, 6.5. You're not going to hold that. And you've got that for 30, 40 seconds. And then you're going to pay the cost of that. And we're going to catch you again because we're still going to go 6, 6.1. Maybe we'll go a little faster. And then can Mm. you recover and stay with us? Well, and that's why no one's doing it. Yeah. So I think also one of the frustrations that we've seen, um, and you picked this up just before we did the podcast, that on the first week of the tour, we've seen a lot of riders put their power data up. Um, and then quite weirdly yesterday, some riders initially put their power data mm. up. And if so you look on Strava, there's a little uh, lightning uh, bolt, which if you see a lightning bolt next to the power, that's when that power has been measured by the actual machine on the on the bike. If it doesn't have the lightning bolt, it means it's been worked out by Strava's algorithm. But yesterday, I would love to have seen Pogacar's or Pogacar, depending on how you want to say his name, what his actual wattage was over that over that climb, because that would have given us a fairly good indication, I would imagine, of, of his watts per kilo, very close to what it would have been. Yeah, so failing that, you have to then work it out. And you can yeah. use these calculators or you can use the VAM method, where yeah. if you know that they were climbing at, let's say, 1,700 meters per hour, and you know that the gradient is 7.1%, there's a formula that you can use to yeah. calculate the, the power outputs in watts per kilogram. Now, what, what was interesting is in preparation for this discussion last night, I was looking up some of the guys to see if they'd uploaded their files because mm. the week before that had been done, we had Pogacar and there was a, 
there was an, okay, I think it was an estimated power output for them. But I was curious to see how yesterday compared. And none of them had any data on their page. So there was no power output listing. There was not even an estimate. The only number you could see was the VAM. So that yeah. was different. And then I was looking at the, the overall leaderboard for the Colombia, and sure enough, Pogacar's number one. But number two was Sepp Kuss. So he was birthday boy yesterday. He was last man standing with Roglic. In fact, when Roglic attacked, Kuss tried to come with him. I think maybe that they were trying to set him up for a little birthday win. Yeah. In the end, he just didn't have the, the watts in the final 200. But what was interesting was that his, his file was on Strava and it had the power output with the lightning bolt. Three, five, nine watts which works out to 5.9 watts a kilo. Is that for the, uh, the Columbia? That's for the Columbia. Yeah. That's why, by the way, for listeners, I'm confident that Pogacar is between 5.9 and 6. Yeah. Because we know that Kuss was, and Kuss was in the group for 98% of the climb. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then literally five minutes later, then I looked at Port, I was looking at some other guys. Reichenbachs is there with a power output. His is 5.5. Go and have a look if you want to. And he lost, I think, three, four minutes. Mm. So, again, confirms the ballpark. Yeah. Chris's power output's gone. Now, I don't know whether they've requested from Strava or the team has had him take it off or not, not put it up there. But again, we're in the same situation we were in six, seven years ago where we were wondering about access to data. Um, yeah. And as I said to you in our show last week, at the time we were doing that analysis, we were having to make these estimates of power output because no one was providing them. And I was like, oh, it's pretty cool they're providing it now, but maybe now that's going to start changing. And I, I don't understand. There's obviously... A lot of scrutiny and if I'm a cyclist I don't want people maybe asking well uh, the, the second best podcast on the internet is called the move <laughs> uh, with a guy called Lance Armstrong and uh, all his cohorts from his days back at uh, um, at uh, postal and uh, they were talking and you pointed this out to me that about 23 minutes into the latest one they put out they talked about whether they would have put their power data up back then and yeah. they said no because they yeah. don't want people to know and so what power they're doing because mm. it gives them a bit of an a bit of an advantage so that discussion on that podcast which i know you really like i i think like a quarter of it is advertising and lance, <laughs> lance trying to sell me sleeping products <laughs> and and some aura ring thing and some yeah, just, breakfast seal. just I use the know, slider man. for the first five minutes i mean <laughs> i do enjoy braniel and hinkabi's insights it's, yeah. it, those are good uh, the reason they were discussing it was because did you hear bernal say after the friday stage that there are just guys stronger than him and that he's putting out the highest numbers that he's done. Mm. He's at the same level he always is. He just can't keep up. Did you hear that? No, I didn't. That was really surprising to me that a guy would say that in the tour because where do you go next when you've told the world that this is as good as you get and it's not good enough? That's as weird. good as you've ever been and it's not good that enough. That was weird because they were asking him because maybe he lost, was it 37 seconds on that finish up towards Primarie. He couldn't yeah. follow initially Pogacar and then Roglic. And he gives this interview. And he's candid, which is cool, by the way. I love the fact that he's honest. Yeah. But it's weird <laughs> because he's being honest about something that he can't fix. Because the only way, the only way Bernal comes back for that is if he goes to a place he's never been in. And if you're, if you're Pogacar and Roglic and you hear that, you're saying, we've got this guy. Yeah. He's got nothing. He's, his gunpowder is done. Yeah. And so it was, it was surprising that he would admit that he was at the highest level he's ever been. Yeah. Or, or, or that he's not at the highest he's ever been, but he's at the same as he normally is. Yeah. Given that he's being beaten. Mm -hmm. Because he's basically, that's a white flag. Yeah. 
Uh, so anyway, so <laughs> Hincapi and Armstrong were discussing whether they should publish their power data, and they were saying no, they wouldn't, because then other guys have know, will know what you got. But they already do. I mean, yeah. if I'm if I'm sitting in France today and it's Monday and I'm Roglic, I don't need to see Pogacar's power. I know what he's got. It's the same as me. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't need to see what uh, what Quintana and and uh, Bernal have got, or or Port or anyone, because I know. Yeah, I'm on the road with them, and they've either got the same as me or less, and that's and in fact. So how do your power data really, at, at, if you're trying to keep other professional teams from not knowing what you're doing, is kind of pointless because most professional teams could work it out for themselves, and, and the average person could work it out for themselves. Yeah, and let's say you're getting beaten, so you are. Okay, Bernal's bad because he was so soundly beaten yesterday, but like to Port, for instance, who's now fighting for a podium. You've got that batch. You've got Iran, Port, Lopez, uh, all in that little cluster behind now fighting yeah. for that third spot, we think, right? You've got to think one and two are Slovenia mm. and everyone fighting for three. They they are seeing Roglic and Pogacar and they're like, okay, he's a little better than me. He's got a little bit more than me at the end of the stage and when it counts. So what? Does it does it change what Port needs to do on the mountain on Wednesday, big finish on the mountain, knowing that they can do 6.4 and he can do 6.2? Yeah. Like who cares? It's it's like it's like in track and field. If if I'm running against Usain Bolt and I know that he can run nine point six two and I can run nine point seven five, it makes no difference to me. Like I can't I can't use that information anyway. All I all I can do is go out and ride as well as I can, and hope they are less good than they normally are. It's, you know you know what I mean? I, yeah. I don't understand this preoccupation yeah. with not showing what what I've got because everyone knows it already anyway, and that that they don't know is unusable. I mean, I'm throwing this out as an interesting question to this, is that if we know that there are certain numbers, like if I'm sitting there and I'm saying, right, you're, you're 5.9, 6 watts per kilo, maybe just over that is pretty much where human limits are. It's a bit like going, for those of you on Zwift, going on to race different categories on, on Zwift, where you have Zwift power and you have D, C, D, and A. Where if you're in D category, you can't ride more than 2.5 watts per kilogram in a race, otherwise you get pushed out of that race category. It feels to me as if, if you know everybody can't do more than six, have we reached the limits of cycling performance that the numbers are the only thing that we can use then to judge? whether somebody is good because you're suggesting then that if somebody goes over that 6.1 or 6.2 or in those upper limits they are there are some questions being asked but most of them are sitting around that six and if everybody's going up the climb at six watts per kilo and you know that you have to do that is that is that the end of competition it's just about numbers you can still within the overall performance of 45 minutes at six let's say yeah. yesterday's scenario Within that, you can still build it different ways. Mm. And that's where, that's where there are subtleties, like the ability of a person to attack two or three times, go from 400 watts to 600 watts for 10, 15 seconds, and then drop back down to 400. Some riders will have that, others will not. And so you can, you can try and find a tactical weakness as a consequence of physiological weakness that yeah. maybe isn't there. Some guys can't ride at one pace for 60 minutes. They need a little bit of fast, slow, and so on. Some guys will be better on steep climbs. Others will be better on the more gradual, constant climbs. But none of that information is available be based on race power because mm. that's really just a requirement. That's the outcome. Mm. So training data might provide you with that. You might be able to see where someone is strong and where someone is weak. So <laughs> ridiculous example, 
it's the only place I can take this, is that when we ride and we target Strava segments on our weekly ride, <laughs> like we, you know where you're strong and I know where I'm strong, yeah. which segment, which length, which steepness. Yeah. If it's 9% for a minute and a half, I'm good to go. If it's 7% for five minutes, I'm no good. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm exaggerating. But yeah. So then, so then you might figure out like where someone's relatively strong, relatively weak, but that's not coming from race data, in my opinion. So I don't, mm. I don't think I would have any issue sharing race files. Uh, I wouldn't share training files until long after they've been used and have run past any uh, imitation yeah. opportunities from rivals. So yeah, and again, I come back to track and field. It's like a four hundreds, let's say. If someone can run 43.6 seconds in a 400, we measure this to the hundredth of a second. You could learn that he he might be relatively strong over the third hundred or that he might be relatively good at the first hundred and then he, he does slow down more in the last 50. You might analyze him like that. Yeah. But actually, if you can't run 43.6, it's all irrelevant. Yeah. So just get on with racing Yeah. and worry about secrecy and training, but not not data in the race. I... I don't understand why it's not shared. It should be it should be compulsory to share. I mean, in Formula One, you can see everything. Yeah, yeah, and that is where yeah. you can actually get an advantage. So, let's talk a little bit about something that's obviously close to your heart, given the fact that you feel so strongly about the way that yesterday's stage at the Columbia was ridden. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Is how do you make the sport of professional cycling a little less about this train of people riding at a certain what wattage up a mountain and basically keeping everybody together. I mean, we've talked about, you know, there has been some discussion over the years about the use of radios, for instance, in, in cycling. How do you make riding up a mountain more exciting amongst the pros? I think the power meters hurt the, like, instinctive nature of cycling. Yeah. Um because again, you've got four guys who've all worked out in the months leading up to the tour that they must just hold, you know, the guy's 64, his target is 380 watts, and he's going to sit between 370 and 390 for 12 minutes, then he's going to peel off, the guy number two is going to come, he's a bit heavier, his target's 415 to 425, he's going to do that for another 10 minutes and peel off. Yeah. Um, if they didn't have that, they would have to go and feel, and they'd have to trust their legs and their lungs and potentially a team leader behind them saying slow down or speed up. Yeah. And then there's a little bit more chance of error, which I think is useful. I think yeah. mistakes make things exciting <laughs> because yeah. if the guy goes too quick in the first 5K of a 17K climb, there's a cost and that cost means intrigue. And so so that that starts to become, I think, a little bit better. So I that would be for me. I would get rid of power meters that can be seen by riders in the race. By all means, gather it and analyze it after the fact. Yeah. The, it's, the, it's the control over the race that I think takes the life out of the race. Mm. I don't know how you feel about yeah, that. Yeah, that's actually 
good thought, actually. I mean, if you, if you, yeah, let us know what you think about that on Twitter. You know, if they had took away the power meters from the riders' bikes, um, you know, would that be good for the sport of professional cycling or not? I, I, I definitely think it would be. Ask yourself this: Why would someone fight you back on that? Yes, because it's not a safety issue. Is no. like ra- like radios. No. So, yeah. so if you did it, and like now the cyclists say, no, 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 that's stupid. You can't do that. Like sod off. What do you know from your your armchair? Mm. So why? What's the problem? Yeah. What's the downside? Yeah. Well, the downside is I don't know what I'm doing and I can't control my effort. That's the point. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> so therefore, <laughs> therefore we're going to do it. Yeah. So I get that they wouldn't want it because it makes them uncomfortable. Mm. But mm. The, the ability to ride to power creates for them a level of control mm. and comfort. Mm. But that's the very thing that's causing the mm. excitement to be diminished. So radios, on the other hand, someone will say, we need radios because there's got to be communication because there could be a safety element there. Yeah. I think I still think that could be overcome if you had radio for safety purposes only and you couldn't talk as a team director or something. But but no, I, I, I'm I'm quite happy for the directors to talk to their riders. Yeah. And say, you know, this guy's up the road two minutes, uh, someone's ahead of you, he's behind you, slow down and wait for him. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I still like the old school way when they used to have a guy going past the motorbike with a, a white chalk. chalkboard yeah. and it had 123 because you knew that by the time that guy got the time gap, it had probably already changed. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and I remember covering uh, cycling events in the sort of late 80s, uh, um, middle of the 90s here in South Africa where that sort of technology was being, well, when I say technology, it was literally the white chalkboard. And you didn't know whether that two minutes it was showing the board was actually the reality or not. And that's what made riding quite exciting because because for the guys in the breakaway, they kept on riding hard. For the guys behind, they weren't entirely sure whether that two, min- two minutes was three minutes or one and a half. So it, it gave that level of uncertainty that I think made cycling much more interesting. Right. Yeah. And then you're asking a cyclist to make decisions. Yes. In conditions of fatigue. Yes. So there's Just... an attack now with 8K to go. Mm. Do I go with it or not? Yeah. Whereas if he's, on his, if he's on his computer and he's looking at his power and he sees I'm at 400, he's attacked me, he can't. No, you, you might still make that deduction because yeah. you understand your body and you understand exactly what's going on and you're experienced, mm. but at least you wouldn't have to, uh, sorry, at least you would have to make a decision. Yeah. And if, and if the wrong decision's made, it equals excitement. Yeah. yeah. So if that's your objective, then that for me would be the first thing you do. I mean, the other thing they used to do was, uh, remember that nine rider teams, they dropped it to eight. Yeah. Uh, you could make the team smaller, but then obviously there are commercial implications because fewer salaries in cycling, the sport shrinks, and that's not good and blah, blah, blah. So that, for me, the low-hanging fruit is ride without a power output power meter, even a, even a computer with speed, you know, because you could still, if you know it's 8% and I'm at 23, you know the power's 400 watts. Yeah, but it's quite hard working that out when you're pushing up a car. So at least there's something <laughs> there. I mean, some guys would do yeah. that, but at least there's, at least you're asking yeah. them to, yeah. So are you suggesting no computers at all? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be interesting? I wouldn't mind. Like Eddie back in the day. Yeah, like and, and Jonathan Waters actually is the director owner of EFF. I don't know if you saw his yeah, tweet. He EF. said that <laughs> yeah. Iran rides without a computer. Really? Yeah, that's what I he said know. on Twitter. He says he rides with a hurt rate monitor. That was his own words, which I thought was quite <laughs> funny, actually. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So, yeah, it is old school like that. Um so he rides, he rode yesterday just on feel. That's what, ran. That's what Ford is saying. I mean, it's not just feel, right? I'm sure that. he's feeling crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's feel like I'm going to stay in the group. Mm. Like, doesn't matter how I feel, I'm going to hang. 
and hang and eventually everyone but three guys is gone and now here I'm fourth and whatever he was on the stage. You know? The funny thing about heart rate monitors, and we'll move on to some of our other discussions after this, but one of the interesting things about it is that we've seen this happening in South Africa in a very famous race here, the Comrades Marathon a few years ago, well, probably not a few years ago, you know, 15 years ago, um, a great runner here in South Africa um, called Nick Bester was running the, the Comrades, which is a 90-kilometer, 56-mile uh, road event. And he ran it on his heart rate. And what ended up happening is he was too conservative in the first half. In the end, he lost the race to Alberta Salazar. Um, but he accelerated in the last eight kilometers and did an unheard split over the last eight Ks. But the strange thing about not wearing a heart rate monitor is that if you're watching your numbers, I think that sometimes those numbers put you off. And if you see, if I see 156 or 160 BPM in my heart rate monitor, I'm thinking, crack, I'm not, I can't go harder than this. Whereas if I don't see that number, I don't really ever, I potentially maybe even go slightly harder than I would normally do if I didn't see the number. Yeah, so maybe yeah. there are some advantages yeah, to not having that dot. Self, self-created glass ceiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. So I'll just read you that tweet from Waters. By the way, Rigo, no power meter, no heart rate monitor, nothing but bananas and an old school hurt rate monitor. That was the, <laughs> the specific tweet. So there you go. Bring it. Yeah, I agree. Um, in that instance with Besta, that was just because he didn't understand the context of heart rate, like the fact yeah. that it's going up in the sixth hour, what would it have been, fifth, sixth hour of a, of a run. Yeah. Plus it's a race, so it's normally higher than in training. And he, he just misapplied the number. But yeah. I agree with you. I think that, I think athletes can surprise themselves. We, we spoke at the end of last week's show, actually, about motivation. And this is the opposite. This is data yeah. diminishing your capacity as opposed to motivation enhancing it. Yeah. Right, so let's move on to um, this is uh, this is pure science, just to some extent. I know for Ross, this is something quite close to your heart, because you're very involved in rugby and uh, international rugby, for that matter. And that was uh, some of the issues we've had and some discussions on some of the forums that I've been on around concussion in cycling. And uh, I think it kind of first came to the fore when we saw Roman Bardet um, falling. I think on Friday. Um, was concussed, managed to ride through to the finish. I think he rode close to 100 kilometers or more, um, got to the finish line. That they, they obviously tested him. He, he was concussed and he had to withdraw from the race. And then uh, during the stage on, uh, I think, Saturday, we had saw Sergio Aguita from the EF team, again, falling extremely hard. Bjorn Jungle's switching him on the climb and uh, for the, on, the, on the road. Yeah. And uh, incredible to see how hard he hit his head on the road. It turned out he wasn't. Um, concussed according to his team but it raised the idea about how do you test riders that do hit their heads in the middle of a race like the Tour de France because you can't afford to have them off the road for 10 minutes because the race is gone yeah so concussion is obviously my day job now it's a big part (laughs) of it anyway um, because I work for world rugby so in the interest of disclosure my knowledge comes from the world of rugby and therefore some degree of bias so I, I do genuinely believe that world rugby are committed to managing concussion in a scientific evidence-based way. And we've just actually had four papers published looking at concussion tests in rugby players, asking whether there are differences between men and women, whether exercise affects it, whether a previous concussion affects it, how doctors apply judgment on the side of the field to overrule uh, test results to return a player, and how that actually improves the performance of the screen. Um, So so we're doing a lot of research to try and understand it. So when is a concussion in cycling... And there's a lot of discussion around a potential missed case. And I mean, let's be clear, Bardet is a missed case because he, he's 
and he ends up going for a scan after Friday's stage and there's a small hemorrhage. Uh, he is unable to continue the race, obviously, for that reason. And it's obviously a massive deal because a second impact or a concussion-induced second accident could have catastrophic consequences, not just for him, but for other cyclists who he happens to wrap up in that accident. Yeah. So the, the requirement in cycling to avoid what we can call a false negative, in other words, a case, a concussion, who is not detective, is pretty massive. And when you have a situation like Bardet, it is dramatic and it draws attention. So you saw the Bardet crash. Uh, he goes down. It didn't look like the world's worst crash, but he obviously has either got whiplash or hit his head. Someone helps him up. He goes back down. They help him up again. Off he goes. Now, that act of getting up and then falling back down clearly shows that there's a balance issue. Yeah. In rugby, that would be grounds for immediate and permanent removal from a match. So that's a visual assessment. So that's a that's a sign that you can assess visually, and you can say this player is. And, and the world rugby definition then is if you show that you're concussed. Yeah. So they, they're going to pull you off, and you're going to be tested after the match, and again two or three days later, and you're not going to play until you pass all the concussion return to play protocols. Now there are eleven signs like that in rugby. They're called in rugby, the criteria one signs. So if if a person on the side of the field or someone watching on video sees any of the following, confirmed loss of consciousness, balance disturbance, disturbance, sorry, or ataxia, which is what we saw from Bardet, uh, clearly dazed, that's hard to see on television, but the sideline, if once the doctor gets on the field, he can see it. Definite behavior changes, oculomotor signs, looking in the eyes, convulsions, suspected loss of consciousness, disorientation in time and space or person, confusion, and tonic posturing. Those are so-called criteria one signs. Now, in most sports, rugby is one of them, those are immediate grounds for removal. There's no test. There's no subsequent follow-up. You're concussed, you're out. There is a... So I tweeted this on Saturday, I think it was, Saturday morning. Yeah. Uh, someone came and said, here's yeah, the cycle. It was Friday, that stage 13. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone came and said, here's the cycling policy. And they do they do say in the cycling policy that if any clear signs of a concussion are present, anyone associated with the race can pull the rider out. The, the problem here really is cultural, is until you formalize that process and you mandate some individual person or group of people, a race doctor or a neurological assessor or a Maybe every team must identify a person who's going to sign this code mm. and say, we're going to be the concussion spotter. It's not going to be implemented often enough. So that's an example of where it probably should have been, but it's not because it's too vague and it's not specific and prescriptive enough. Makes sense. Yeah. So, so Bardet's situation could have been avoided simply if a policy existed that had to be followed and there was a person there. The, the big challenge for cycling, and this is obvious, is that the unlike a rugby match, it doesn't happen in one place. Yeah. And that one place where it happens moves. <laughs> so where it was now is not where it is in five minutes or 10 minutes. In fact, it's six, seven, eight, ten 10 kilometers away. Yeah. So where in rugby you have the luxury of getting the player off for 10-minute screen, that doesn't exist for cycling. So whatever you do in cycling has to be an on-the-go assessment, literally yeah. has to move with the event. So in rugby, and we did a podcast on this last year in about, about this time, actually, September, October, on concussion, you can go and have a listen to the detail on that. The thing you have to get with a concussion is you have to buy space and time. 
because it's very difficult to identify a concussion instantly and from afar. And so what, you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get a medical expert and the athlete, in this case Bardet, to have a one-on-one -on -one quiet moment where the doctor can properly assess Bardet's condition. Yeah, That doesn't exist on the side of the road, just like it doesn't exist on the field. So in rugby, it was found that when the doctor comes onto the field, he's got about 57 seconds to do an assessment. It's impossible. Mm. There's 60,000 people. The player is hyped up. He's running on adrenaline. He wants to get back onto the field and play. The doctor's got to make it to that player, do an assessment, get off the field, out of the way. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. So rugby's solution was time and space. Get the guy off the field for 10 minutes to do the assessment. Now in cycling, you can't do that. Yeah. So therefore, you've got to start thinking, well, what are the things you can do in two minutes? And then what are the things you can do on the bike? Now, we know from our studies in rugby that some tests are worth more than others. So in the concussion test, remember we did you. Uh, we, <laughs> we, we didn't concuss Mike, but we might as well have. Uh, <laughs> joking. We, we put I Mike, failed a few we took Mike. We put Mike through the whole head injury assessment. It's a 10-minute sideline thing, and it basically involves orientation questions. Yeah. Where are you today? What month is it? Who did you play last week? All that's for rugby. So in cycling, you might ask, which race is it? Uh, which team are you from? Uh, who won the last stage? I don't know, stuff like that, right? Yeah. Then there's a memory test, give you a list of words, you've got to say them back. Then there's a concentration test, a list of numbers, you've got to repeat them backwards. So if I said 463, you've got to say 364. That's the hardest part. Yeah, I remember that as a battle. <laughs> then there's some symptoms, headaches, nausea, dizziness, etc., yeah. feeling in a fog. There's a balance assessment. Again, think about a balance assessment in cycling shoes. Not so easy to do. You can't mm. just transfer what happens in rugby to cycling. Maybe you yeah. need a specific cycling balance assessment. Yeah. Then there's delayed recall where we ask you for those words we gave you and clinical signs. So there's a whole battery of tests that tests a range of different things. So of those, some, based on our research, are more powerful predictors than others. And cycling might need to start saying, well, in two minutes, what are the three tests we might do? Mm. Maybe, maybe the digits backwards, the concentration test is a 30-second test that is pretty good. Maybe the memory test takes 30 seconds. We can do that one. And maybe there's an eye test that we can start to introduce. And that's all as, a, as an initial screen. Yeah. And then we get the guy back on the bike, but he holds on to the doctor's car and we're going to do maybe some more things. Balance. Can he do certain things while he's riding? Cycling needs to start, I think, thinking about bike-specific tests. Yeah. So how's this for completely blue sky thinking is imagine you could have a little accelerometer in the handlebars that fed information back that said whether the guy's balance was impaired on the mm. bike after mm. the head impact compared to normal. Maybe, because in rugby, they've tried that, by the way. They've got these balance assessments. But when you watch someone, remember you had to stand on one leg with your hands on your hips, yeah. with your eyes closed? Yeah, and not we easy. And we counted how many times you lost your balance or you swayed. Mm -hmm. That's quite subjective. Like, oh, look, Mike sort of swayed mm. left to right. If we had a little device on your hip, Mm. We could actually measure how much you swayed. Mm. starts to become a bit more precise. And so watching it at the time, I thought maybe you need to start thinking about getting something like that onto the bike and, and mm. having the guy do a couple of tests while he's moving with the race. Mm. The other thing they could do is they could say, right, he's gone down and a timer starts. And we are going to give him a two-minute 
drive in the car to catch up so that he's not lost any time as a consequence of the two minutes it took to test him. They've got to do something yeah. to lower the barriers to testing the guy because at the moment, every second that he's being tested is a second that he's got to catch up and he doesn't want that. Yeah. So it's a, they've got to change that somehow. What's interesting, and I think that you've mentioned this when it comes to American football, for instance, that even you think, well, the guys are wearing helmets and we saw in the case of Agita when, when he fell, he hit his head extremely hard on the tar. I mean, if you'd guessed that he'd got concussion, you know, 90% of the time he probably would have been right. The fact mm. that he didn't was a surprise. But do helmets prevent concussion? So a couple of things on that really interesting is we spoke about that last time and we even joked about those airbag helmets that yes, go around your no, neck. That's true, yes. And then one of our one of our followers, a f- friend of the pod on, on Patreon, a guy called William from Sweden, actually wrote in and said, heard you talking about that. Just so you know, those are actually quite popular in Sweden. Oh, really? Okay. And we said on the pod, they'll never take off. <laughs> so you what we know. Um, so, so those might work. They're, a, they're a style icons in Sweden. <laughs> But, uh, but the helmets that are worn now are mostly pre- to prevent blunt force trauma on the skull. And so that's really what they're doing. Yeah. Because the, the cause of a concussion is the, is the sudden either linear or rotational movement of the head that causes forces inside the skull. And you can't really change that much with a helmet. Okay. And so there is very limited evidence that helmets are that effective against concussions. They, they are certainly beneficial. I mean, imagine a Gita without a helmet. Oh. That's a, that's a cat catastrophe yeah but as far as concussion goes not really uh if there's an effect it's a tiny one are you surprised he wasn't concussed looking at the footage that we saw i mean you watch him coming down and he hits his head probably at 50 k's so, an hour so that's where it's, it's also quite interesting because then in response to some tweets some of you also got in touch on twitter which mm. i love about twitter um for all its toxic sometimes vibes it's cool for this kind of purpose yeah. someone said well what about sensors in helmets because they can measure the forces. And then I, actually just before we came on air, I was chatting with uh, Dr. Howard Hurst, who's doing some studies on mountain bikers. And I'll read this to you. It says, we have a paper in review at present on mountain biking. And he says that we've shown that a mountain bike rider repeatedly experiences impacts of more than 80 Gs just riding downhill without crashing. Oh, so Wow. So now here's the problem. Is if, is if those are the forces in the... Because your head's... I mean, you know, like when we go down our little green belt thing, it's like, <laughs> like our head's are bobbling. Yeah, it's like true. a little bobble head yeah. on my shoulder. Especially on my gravel bike. <laughs> there you go. Um, now, imagine bigger, steeper drops at much faster speeds than we yeah, the DH ever, guys, yeah, ever yeah. dare to, to use, right? Uh-huh. Um, so if, if there are that many high forces and then you get a crash, mm. the, the, the impact on, on the head or the acceleration on the head in the crash might actually disappear into the soup. Mm, mm. And then you're going to try and diagnose a concussion based on that. That's where it becomes a problem for me because you're going to get a ton of false positives. Yeah. So I feel like Higita probably in that accident, the force in his head might have been huge, but that force doesn't necessarily predict concussion. That's the point I was trying to make here is that there's, there's not a great relationship between the actual force and the mm. concussion. Sometimes a concussion happens with low force. Other times it doesn't happen with high force. Yeah, because it depends on so many other things. Was your neck braced for that impact? We know in rugby that if you get tackled from behind and you're blinded and not sighted before that impact, yeah, the concussion can happen at much lower forces because you just weren't prepared. Other times you can see it coming, massive force, no problem. Yeah. So it's actually quite a complex thing, and you can't just identify it using an accelerometer in this in the helmet. Yeah, so it's complicated. 
I think cycling should try and measure that stuff more just to get a picture of what it looks like, like Dr. Hurst here has mentioned. That's a um, fascinating bit of information that would be about really mountain cool bikes. To wow. So, so imagine you've got 100 impacts, quotes, unquote, mm. and some of them are 80 Gs. And you've got to, so this is the problem is if I showed you all the impacts in a race and said one of these is a crash and caused a concussion, which is it? You would have a very poor likelihood of guessing, yeah. picking it out from a list. That's what well, that's if it was a mountain bike, yes. That's the that's yeah. the point. Yeah. Yeah. It would be amazing if all of them were between ten and twenty, and then there was one at forty, and that was it. Bang. Okay, he's over forty; he's concussed. But unfortunately, it doesn't quite work that way. So you have to be careful about making a clinical diagnosis when there's a high risk of a false positive. Yeah. Because contrary to what you might think, those false positives are really damaging mm. because they will cause the sport to lose confidence in the system. Mm. And so some people are saying, oh, when a guy crashes, he must automatically be screened for a concussion. You can't. It's too much um, because there are three crashes a stage. More. Yeah. I mean, we see three a stage. Yeah. We don't even see half of them. So six crashes per stage, 30 cyclists per day mm. needing a concussion screen. It's not happening. Mm. It's too much. You know, yeah. you're asking for too much there. So it's it's... Cycling is very difficult in cycling. Yeah. But yeah. I do think that they should have a, a formal, a more prescriptive policy. They need to task more people with the role of identifying these injuries. Mm. They need to think about a modified, very short assessment that can be done standing. Yeah. An intermediate length one that can be done with the guy riding on the side of the road. Or you've got to put him in the ambulance for five minutes and drive at the same pace of the race so that he doesn't lose time. Yeah. So that he can get out of the ambulance having not incurred an, an, a punishment for having a head, head assessment. Are you available to the UCI and the ASO? Yeah, call me up, call me up. I mean, I got an email <laughs> yesterday, actually. I should say thanks also to Jonathan Elliott, who's a doctor who follows me on Twitter. And he sent me a paper that he'd written with some colleagues. It's in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. It's, and it basically describes a protocol without going into massive detail called Sports-Related Concussion in Road Cycling. Neil Heron is the main author. Elliot's the second author on it. And so people are already thinking about this. Yeah. And I mean, for sure, like, mm. World Rugby will speak to anyone about it because yeah. we, yeah, I mean. You've got all, some protocol already in place there. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. there's a concussion in sport group, you know, that meets mm. every year in November. Mm. We met in Stockholm last year, and it's American football, basketball, mm. uh, ice, sorry, no, uh, ice hockey's there. Mm. Rugby League, Rugby Union, Equestrian comes along to it. And so not so. sponsored by Tylenol, are you? Yeah. <laughs> no, then it's, I'd be that's a bit called a dad joke. Increase the, uh, <laughs> increase the incidence. <laughs> it wouldn't solve the problem. I'd put myself out of business. Yeah. Yeah, well, interesting. I mean, it's interesting to see. I mean, I, I, you don't see it very often in cycling where people, like concussions are a massive Incredibly problem. rare, by the way. Yeah. Just unbelievably rare. Like, I worked out just before coming on air, if you've got, what's it, 160 guys, let's say, ride the yeah. tour. Four hours a day. It says every day exposes 640 hours worth of cycling. Yeah. Times 20 days. It's 13,000 hours of cycling in the Tour de France. Right. And there's maybe one or two concussions. Yeah. It's unbelievably unlikely. So you, you could almost argue, is there a need for a protocol about something that is so unlikely well, to happen? Be because the severity of that thing could be yeah, life-changing or ending, yeah. there is, definitely. So I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying its probability or likelihood incidence is mm. low to downplay it. But what I'm saying is that when you have something with such low incidence or, or propensity, per, mm. I mean, per thousand crashes, how many are concussion? Very few. Yeah. Um, you need to be careful about introducing something that causes so many false positives that you actually, as I said, the cycling community would lose confidence 
And the end result of a loss of confidence in the medical system is, is ironically that you'd identify fewer of them because they wouldn't come to you anymore. And ultimately, what cycling needs to do is change the culture around head impacts. If a cyclist goes down and hits his head hard, his first thought should be, I better check that I'm not concussed. At the moment, that's not the thought. The first thought is, put me back on the bike. I want to make yeah. it to the finish line. And if you, if you overplay the diagnosis of concussion, you will prevent the cyclist from accepting that you're actually in his best interest to pick it up. You know what I mean? You actually put them off. So, yeah, so because it's low incidence, it's more important than ever that you don't create a whole spate of false positives. Well, there we are. So UCI, ASO, anybody involved in cycling, uh, Ross is available to consult on your protocol for <laughs> for uh, uh, concussion in cycling. Well, let's uh, have a last little look before we uh, end this podcast today at some of the uh, our predictions for the week. And this last week of the tour is a lot of hills. In fact, they've almost packed all the climbing into this last week. Um, Wednesday, the, 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 the stage that starts from Grenoble um, going up, it, it's a huge amount of climbing, finishing up with a, a climb up the Mirabel Col de Luza. I hope mm. I got my French right there. Famous ski spot. There we Maribel, go. So, yeah. I mean, it, fact, it wasn't is. wasn't Mirabel where Schumacher had his, his uh, head injury? I think, it, um, I think it was actually. Anyway, it's maybe, a famous, maybe it's a famous it ski spot. But they also go up the Col de Madeleine on that day as well, which is incredible. Looking at the stats on that, 17 kilometers at 8.4%. That's the Col de Madeleine. Then they go down the other side and then they go up the Mirabel, which is, looking at the numbers here, 21.5 kilometers at 7.8%. So and that it's ends up, at, uh, they both, they both go over two, eh? 2000. They both go over uh, 2000, yeah, 2304 meters above sea level is the climb of the uh, Col de la Luza. That's the finish one. Two, that's three. the finish one. And the yeah. Madeleine's also over two. I and think. the Madeleine's over two as so well. So that's, that's, you see, and that's where but I it's thought. it's two exactly the Madeleine. Mm, yeah. That's where I thought that the Colombians might start to come into a little bit yeah, of their own. Because the higher the altitude, yeah. the more they come into their own. Because they have ancestry there. So it's not yeah. even just the case that they train at altitude. Yeah. It's that their mothers and their grandmothers and their great-grandmothers and so on were all mm. altitude natives. And physiologically, mm. we believe that gives you some advantage in how you defend brain oxygenation and so on. Mm. So... You know, last week the prediction was that if they could get there in contention, those Colombian climbers could actually start to see a bit of an altitude advantage. Yeah. Uh, there still are some. I mean, third yeah. and fourth are Colombian. Martinez is still there. But, um, yeah. and, and obviously Iran with his hurt, hurt rate monitor. Yeah. Um, I'm rooting for Iran now that I know he doesn't have all these <laughs> fancy things. But I mean, <laughs> what a it is a surprise that Bernal and Quintana won't be uh, mm. among the Colombians who, who potentially get that benefit. So... Mm. Yeah, that'll be that'll be a big day because uh, it's a big mountain finish. Yeah, and then of course the Saturday's the time trial up. Um, the plans to Philly. Yeah, to finish uh, really yeah. to finish the race to decide yeah. the race. You know, so. Yeah. So predictions, are you still going with Roglic as your number as your winner? Yeah, only because of the team. Yeah. Um, I think I think the the situation tomorrow is a bumpy day and it's got mm. a small uphill finish, a big cat one is the second to last climb and then they finish up to Villard de Lance at the end. I don't think that that's going to be big enough or potent enough to cause any splits. So it'll stay the same tomorrow. Yeah. Wednesday is the next real opportunity. And because it's such a long finish climb, I can see it happening the same as yesterday where you've got a team just sucking the legs out the life out of everyone else's legs. And <laughs> is, is Pogacar going to go for it? If he does, I feel like he and Roglic are so tightly locked together that there's really not much to be gained from a long-range attack 
for for Pogacar. But so, he's only the only way he's going to potentially win this tour is by doing a long range attack because they are so closely matched. He's almost going to have to catch Roglic by or, surprise. Yeah, always placing a bet that he's going to get 35, 40 seconds on the on the time trial. Yeah. Um, in which case he needs one more finishing bonus, mm. sprint bonus, or he needs to beat Roglic to the finish line on the two mountain finishes before Saturday. Yeah. Puts him 32 seconds and then he's going to have to take his chances against the clock. But but it's they it, they feel closely enough together that it's mm. I think Roglic will mark an attack if it's a long range one successfully. Mm. But who knows? I mean, who would have thought Bernal's losing seven minutes on a yeah middle of the tour climb? Who uh, would have thought we had two Slovenians basically fighting it out for the top spot? I mean, it is quite incredible to think two or three years ago you wouldn't have thought of Slovenia as the biggest nation of powerhouse cyclists in the world. But yeah. here we are. So much the same as last week, it feels to me that for Pogacar to win it, Roglic has to drop. Mm. He's, he's got to come down, not by much, 1%, 2%. Gives Pogacar 20 seconds and another 20 on the time trial, and that's the yellow jersey. Yeah. But if Roglic doesn't drop, I, I, I still I can't see Pogacar improving relative to where he's been. I can only see him staying at the level, which is the highest level he's been at. Does he get better than that? I can't see that. So. Yeah. For me, Roglic, Pogacar, and then I think Port will be third. Port looks to me to yeah. be the best of the rest at this stage, and he looks like he's got some punch. Plus, he can time trial, so that would be my podium at this point. But again, one bad day is two yeah. minutes, never mind one, the seven. Or one day of three COVID tests positive could be the end of a team in the whole race. So I suppose there's lots of things to think about over the next couple of days. We hope that the uh, COVID tests do not affect the overall outcome of this race. That would be really, really sad. But uh, I think it is going to be an intriguing last few days of the tour, and I'm hoping that we're going to be bringing you a, a podcast at the end of it. There's so much more we could talk about. We saw a story yesterday on Cycling News about some synthetic blood doping <laughs> that they're talking about. We haven't even got into well, that. That's, and again, I mean, <laughs> I spoke about patterns yeah. um, and the team at the front dominating and the and, and, and much more even than the numbers, the patterns. But then mm. in the backdrop is Operation Adelas and the yeah. doping and the allegation site of use. It's just the same as 10 years ago, you had the allegations of Operation Puerta. And before that, you had the Festina scandal. So you're seeing stuff on the bike that you can't really divorce from the context around it. And the context around it makes you really wonder. Yeah. And that's an example of it. Well, they're talking particularly about that drug has been something around 2016, 2017 when they saw it coming through. But... You know, who knows? And obviously there's no evidence to link, linking directly to the teams at the moment. And we can't cast aspersions on them at all, but uh, certainly dramatic. And, of course, the one thing I've always wanted to talk about, which we've been talking about right, I've been talking to you about this off pod um, since the start, is that one day when I think it was um, uh, Hesink, that's right, Robert Hesink, <laughs> had an is average it? heart rate on one of the stages of 100. And I yeah, thought and his, that... and his lowest, and, he, he, he was under 60. Going down some of the hills. It's nuts. I mean, that's is that possible? I don't know. I mean, there's always a chance he's got faulty, faulty readings or is something. It? But like, I mean, I, I I get out of bed in the morning. I'm over a hundred. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know whether that's good or bad. But I, mean, I normally I, am. I don't. I don't get much below sixty at night. You know, like I have quite a high, as you know, heart rate. But you do. When I saw Hessink at something in the sixties coming down a pass, I mean, that's just. Let's actually go and look at Strava and see. If that always looks like that, if it, or if it's an aberration, yeah. we'll check. But they that talk out about they talk time. about Miguel Indurain who had a resting heart rate of twenty eight. Well, we got a mate, and he cycles with. He used to be an elite triathlete. How's it, yeah. Richard? If he yeah, ever Rich. listens to this, he was asking us about 
critical power and, and, and FTP yeah. the other day. And I was like, this, he clearly hasn't listened to the podcast. So <laughs> since then, there's a good podcast on that. Uh, I don't know if you listened to this, but how's it rich? And he was saying that he used to have, when he was an elite triathlete, heart rate of 28. Yeah. And it was terrible because he used to lie in bed and he could hear his heart beating in his ear because yeah. it was so forceful. Yeah. Could you feel his pulse in his head. That's it's, a proper diesel engine going on there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's a big heart. Strong. But it also shows to, to some extent, and this is maybe my last point to the podcast today, is that during some of the stages for some of the riders, because they sit in this little sort of bubble uh, where they're being protected from the wind and all sorts of things, almost dragged along. But that for some of those, we look at the Tour de France, we say these guys are racing every single day. But the reality is that for most of those days, some of the riders are doing very little. And on the flat stages, those top riders are probably operating at less than 50% of their maximum heart rate and almost having a sort of a, a almost a rest day yeah. physically. The, the, the key yeah. is, though, that there's going to be in a four-hour day, 10 minutes where they have to operate yeah. at 100% of their capacity. Yeah. And if they couldn't, the consequence would be that they'd have to operate at capacity for three and a half hours because yeah. they wouldn't be in the group anymore. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's, it is interesting. And I remember going to a conference where they showed the power output data from a guy throughout a Tour de France. And for a big portion of it, he's really, mm. really functioning at low watt, low watts. Yeah. But then you see when it, when it counts, they have to go to places that like only – one in a hundred people can. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed the last week of the 2022 de France. We'll be back, I'm pretty sure, next Monday with a wrap-up of this year's event. But from us, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.